Think for just a moment about your most challenging experiences of relational conflict. Doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> I'm not asking you to do this, by the way, to cause discomfort. I'm not asking in order to solicit a particular emotional response. I'm asking you to do it because a few moments ago we encountered a teaching from Jesus in Scripture that demands, I think, nothing less than authentic introspection. And so, if you are willing, will you take just a moment to think about your most challenging experiences of relational conflict? Maybe they took place in your family, or in your workplace, or in social media, or in your network of friends and acquaintances, or in the church. Think about those situations of conflict in your life in which the conflict was meaningfully addressed and resolved. What do you think were the factors that led to the resolution? But think also about those experiences of conflict in which the conflict has gone painfully unresolved. What do you think is getting in the way of the resolution? In a deeply conflicted congregation, 47 people once gathered for a Saturday morning church meeting. And we were intentional about beginning our time together that day with an experience of worship. We thought that was important. And as their district superintendent and the one who was presiding at the meeting, I offered a meditation on the supernatural unity and reconciliation that I believe Jesus makes possible all the while patting myself on the back for the timeliness of my proclamation. We sang a song together as part of that worship experience that day, the words of which were these. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. And I wish you could have been the proverbial fly on the wall of that sanctuary because the people sang beautifully that day. They really did. They sang with conviction as though they believed that those words reflected their deepest convictions. We heard from Scripture that day. We prayed together that day. And then we concluded the worship experience by sharing the unifying bread and cup of the Lord's Supper. It could not have gone better. Fifteen minutes later, it was as though none of that mattered. Bitter words were exchanged by people who seemed far more interested in winning a fight than they were in building consensus. Public accusations were made in that sanctuary, not for the purpose of illuminating truth, mind you, but for the purpose of defending a viewpoint and demonizing anyone who would dare to stand against it. Five different church leaders resigned their position of leadership that day and stormed out of the congregation or out of the sanctuary in protest. One of them pointing a finger at me from the back of the sanctuary before he left. You had better do something about some of the people in this church or else this church isn't going to be here anymore. And on the long drive home that day on Interstate 79, 
I remember having this painful conversation with God that sounded something like this. Hey, God, I don't know what that was that I experienced back there, but it sure didn't feel like church. It felt like a feud. It felt like a battleground of unresolved conflict, most of which I did not fully understand, in which people had lost the capacity to see one another through any other lens but contempt. And I believe the heart of my sadness that day was my recognition of the fact that if the church is not intentional about its stewardship of conflict, please hear this, if the church is not intentional about its stewardship of conflict, then the church's people will behave less like Jesus and more like many of the other conflicted souls in our world, manipulatively, coercively, and with contempt. And God knows there is no shortage of contempt in our assortment of conflicts in this world, is there? It makes me think that perhaps one of the most tempting negative responses in the midst of conflict is to fixate on anger to such an extent that our anger becomes an emotional altar upon which one is willing to sacrifice one's entire life. And the problem with that is that when anger becomes an altar, it is no longer then a righteous anger. And hear this, righteous anger is important. There are some conflicts that demand righteous anger, no doubt. But when anger becomes an emotional altar, it is no longer a righteous anger, but a weaponized anger. And most of you have lived long enough to understand that the problem with a weaponized anger is that it exaggerates the people with whom we are in conflict so that those people become distorted enemies standing on the other side of a wall of enmity that is disproportionately high. conflict. It is exhausting, isn't it? Heartbreaking, but important. In fact, I've said it more than once when I'm officiating at a wedding. I've said it more than once in my conversation with the bride and the groom that the stewardship they practice over their conflict in marriage or in life in general will become some of the most important stewardship that they ever practice. I believe that. I believe that. Which is why I'm so grateful that Jesus was not silent on the matter of conflict in the life of faith. In the scripture that Tyler shared with us moments ago from Matthew, Jesus speaks to the issue of conflict, and he does so in a way that is simultaneously practical, deeply spiritual, and unapologetically theological. If a brother or sister sins against you, Jesus teaches, which is to say, if you find yourself in conflict with someone, either because that person has wronged you or perhaps you have wronged that person, if a brother or sister sins against you, then go, Jesus teaches. Address the matter privately when the two of you are alone. Now let's pause and acknowledge that there is no way for that to cover absolutely every experience of conflict because there are some experiences of conflict in which it would be irresponsible or dangerous to care for the conflict privately 
without someone else present, sometimes without law enforcement being present. So let's acknowledge together at the outset that Jesus is not speaking about criminal conflict here. He is speaking of relational conflict. If a brother or sister sins against you, wrongs you, then before you do anything else, go. Address the matter privately when the two of you are alone. It sounds so painfully simple, doesn't it? In fact, it sounds perhaps like too obvious a teaching to deserve any kind of sermonic attention in a Sunday morning worship service. Were it not for humankind's culturally reinforced proclivity for gossip and divisive alignments and bringing people into conflict who have absolutely no connection to the conflict whatsoever except for their voyeuristic desire for a front row seat. In that kind of a culture, in that kind of a world, this seemingly simple teaching from Jesus becomes what? Revolutionary, right? Counter-cultural. Don't broadcast your conflict to your constituents, Jesus essentially says. Don't try to turn the other people in your life against the person with whom you are in conflict simply as a way of advertising or publicizing your pain. Rather, Jesus instructs, go to the person with whom you are in conflict so that the two conflicted parties might begin to gain some vision of what reconciliation might look like. I find myself wondering how many of the conflicts in my life, how many of the conflicts in our lives would be somewhat different if the church's people were prayerfully attentive to this first portion of Jesus' teaching. A portion of teaching, by the way, that finds its theological origin, I believe, in the salvific efforts of a God who, in Jesus, saw fit to initiate a face-to-face encounter with a world that is often in conflict with its creator. You see, when Jesus teaches the way that he's teaching in this scripture, he's not offering to us speculative self-help. He's offering to us the very methodology of God, the way of incarnation, the way of vulnerability, the way of going to the one with whom we are in conflict before we go anywhere else. But Jesus is not simplistic in his counsel. He never is. That may not work, Jesus essentially says, and if it doesn't, if you do not feel that you're listened to in that private conversation, then try taking one or two others with you so that every word in the conversation might be tested, measured. Jesus is wise enough to understand that conflict can be so pervasive and so complex that there are times when consultation with a trusted third party is necessary. A mediator, right? A trusted friend, one or two voices outside of the conflict, a counselor, a therapist, a spiritual leader, somebody who is carrying, carrying no other agenda but the desire to help two conflicted people to see one another and hear one another and value one another and find their way, if possible, back toward one another's hearts. Read the text carefully, friends. At no point is Jesus suggesting in this that we gang up on the person with whom we're in conflict. That's not the purpose of it. Tempting as that might be. Look, I have my army with me. 
Listen to them if you won't listen to me. That's not what Jesus is advocating. He's certainly not telling us to carry our conflict to our favorite social media platform for the purpose of validating our grievances by seeing how many people will support us in them. But Jesus is inviting us, I think, to see the wisdom of consulting with a trusted, spiritually, emotionally mature third party who might help the conflicted parties to begin to practice both accountability and reconciliation. And then, finally, only finally, if the private conversation doesn't produce reconciliation, and if consulting a trusted third party doesn't work, only then, Jesus says, is it an appropriate thing to expand the conversation, or to put it in an ecclesiastical context, only then is it appropriate to make it a congregational conversation. And even at that point, it is not for the purpose of shaming the ones who are conflicted. It is rather for the purpose of surrounding these conflicted souls with a supportive community so that the conflict does not become unnecessarily destructive. And then if all of that fails, Jesus says, well then, let that person be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And if you don't know the biblical narrative, that can sound incredibly judgmental and dismissive. But for those of you who've spent any time reading the Gospels, let me ask you a question. How does Jesus treat the Gentile? How does Jesus treat the tax collector? Well, by spending extra time with them. Sometimes even going into their houses uninvited for the purpose of breaking bread with them and spending meaningful time with them. Jesus, according to the Gospels, loves the Gentile, loves the tax collector. So, in this moment of counsel, when Jesus says, let the person be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile, he is not advocating hatred. He's not advocating rejection. He's giving us permission to do nothing but love the person with whom we're in conflict. But he is acknowledging, and this is hard, but he's acknowledging that there will be some conflicts that do not find a quick resolution. There will be some conflicts that we will have to hold in our hearts, and we will have to practice love for the one with whom we're conflicted from a bit of a prayerful distance simply because that person has not yet come to understand the beautiful power of reconciliation. There's a poem by E.E. E. Cummings that has come to mean a great deal to me. Love is more thicker than forget, and I always love E.E. E. Cummings because of the way that he plays with language and you know as one who has studied English literature and grammar it it takes me out of my comfort zone because I have to figure out what it is that he's saying love is more thicker than forget more thinner than recall more seldom than the wave is wet more frequent than to fail and I believe in those interesting words of poetry E.E. E. Cummings is calling to mind this durable love, and I believe that it's precisely the same durable love to which Jesus bears witness in this counsel on division and conflict. A love that is thicker than forgetting about the conflict. 
but a love that is thin enough not to become bloated with resentment and bitterness and contempt. You see, the counsel in this moment of Scripture is so practical that sometimes we're tempted to lose sight of its theological significance. I believe that in this moment, Jesus is inviting us into a love that is more thicker than forget, in which even the stewardship that we practice over conflict is transformed by the reconciling grace of our God. You know what I was thinking about the other day? For some reason, don't know exactly why, but I was thinking about the classic comedic film, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. How many of you have seen, out of curiosity, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Okay, great. Uh, 1987, by the way, hard as that might be to believe. But these two great comedic actors, right? Steve Martin and the late, great John Candy, who I believe had so many more films to make. But they play these two characters, Neil and Dell, who are endeavoring to make their way home for Thanksgiving after all the flights have been canceled because of weather. And I suppose that it's an understatement to say that the film is essentially energized by this spirit of conflict between these two main characters. They irritate one another and offend one another at practically every turn. And at some point in the film, after a particularly unpleasant experience in a cramped hotel room, Neil erupts with anger. Hey, Dell, you know, you don't have to tell every story that pops into your head. You have to discriminate. You have to choose things that are funny or amusing or interesting. You're a miracle because your stories have none of that. Your stories, your stories are not even amusing accidentally. Oh, and here's another idea, Dell. If you're going to tell these stories, try to have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. You're like a chatty Kathy doll that keeps pulling her own string. Blah, 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 blah. And you begin to see in Dell's eyes the woundedness of those words. They're landing and they're landing hard. And so he responds, you want to hurt me? Go right ahead. I'm an easy target. And you're right, I, I talk too much. But I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you, but I don't like hurting people's feelings. So you go ahead and think whatever you want about me. I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me because I'm the real article. What you see, John Candy, right? What you see is what you get. And part of why I love the film and why I'm calling it to mind in this moment is that there's something that happens in that moment of cinema. There's something that happens. And I think this has to do with just the quality of these two uh, comedians. But you sense that in that moment, Neil begins to soften. He begins to repent a bit of the anger. He begins to regret the hurtful things that he just said to this man. He begins, if you will, to see Dell's humanity in a whole new way. And why do you think that might happen? Well, it might happen because in that unlikely setting of a cramped hotel room, 
maybe Neil and Dell begin to steward their conflict instead of forgetting about it. Instead of pretending that it's not there, instead of tiptoeing around it, they begin to steward their conflict, and in doing so, somehow they find their way into the nooks and crannies of one another's complicated hearts. Let's acknowledge together, friends, that there will be some conflicts that will not resolve quickly. Maybe you're dealing with a few of those in your life right now. There are some conflicts that will not resolve quickly. And it might be that you're called upon to love somebody with whom you're in conflict from a bit of a prayerful distance. But my question is, might we, as followers of Jesus, approach our conflicts differently? because of Jesus. Might we offer something different than the world offers in that regard? Might we stubbornly resist the temptation to reduce the people with whom we're in conflict to nothing more than distorted antagonists on the other side of an issue or a circumstance? Might we dare to practice a love that is more thicker than forget? in which even the stewardship that we practice over our conflict becomes different because of the reconciling grace of our God. In the name of Jesus, may it be so. Amen.